I'm so excited to be here. My name is Faison Arshad. I'm an EMS medical director in the Hudson Valley, New York. I've had a whole host of experiences, including working with FDNY as one of the deputy medical directors of Manhattan. I've been the medical director of the New Jersey State Police and working on tactical uh, situations. And again, my focus and mission is to deliver the highest quality care possible for our citizenry so that we can all upgrade our care and improve the disparity in outcomes that's all over the country and that kind of hurts my heart. Why is it that you can go into cardiac arrest in one municipality and have a very high chance of intact neurologic survival and then your neighboring county you can go into cardiac arrest and pretty much you should just call the medical examiner, right? So these are things that we have to work on as a specialty in EMS. And one of the critical care topics that I love to talk about is pre-oxygenation and apneic oxygenation. So let's just start with some basic physiology. Pre-oxygenation. How many folks remember seeing this curve? All right, hopefully everybody. And one of the pertinent points here, and I think um, my friends also from Foam Ed, the Flight Bridge Ed podcast, came up with this rule called a four, five, six, seven, eight, nine rule. So yeah, we of course attach a pulse oximeter to our patient to try and determine what their oxygen saturation is. But we always have to remember within the blood that has to correspond to a partial pressure of oxygen. And the critical procedure we're gonna be talking about today is endotracheal intubation and optimizing your uh, patient's physiology so you don't assassinate them. Some of you guys uh, on the podcast, you can listen to my talk, uh, the laryngoscope as a murder weapon, and that kind of focuses on push dose pressors and optimizing your anatomy and physiology prior to pushing your RSI meds. Here we're gonna be focusing on pre-oxygenation and denitrogenation, okay? So let's correspond this. So even if I have an O2 saturation of 90%, that actually corresponds to a PO2 of 60, which means my patient is at high risk of hypoxia. They're on that very slippery slope. Their reserves are limited. All of a sudden, you're pushing a paralytic and things go south, right? What we're trying to do and avoid is that sphincter tightening. Oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. Oh shit, what did I do? Right, so four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, good rule of thumb. SpO2 of 90% is of course gonna be a minimum, but uh, we want them to be 100%. And that corresponds to a PaO2 of anywhere from 100, 200, 300. We want that partial pressure of oxygen to be as high as possible, why? Because that allows for prolonged apnea time. What if I miss the tube on my first try? Of course, you guys are all all-stars and studs, and you guys have first pass success rates of 90, 8.9%, but nevertheless, just in case you have a trainee on board and you're like, oh, okay, I'll give him one try before I step in, we really wanna optimize that patient's physiology. So let us define denitrogenation. What does this mean? So nitrogen is the dominant gas in the air that we are breathing every single day, and nitrogen is not oxygen. That's the basic premise. So what we need to do before preparing for RSI is flood our patient with 100% FiO2 so that we can kick out the nitrogen and have vast quantities of oxygen floating in my hypopharynx, my posterior oropharynx, in my alveoli, just saturated with oxygen to get rid of that nitrogen. Now, how do we effectively do that? 
how do we denitrogenate patients prior to RSI? What's our technique? What's our minimum standard? Three to five minutes of tidal volume breathing to effectively denitrogenate your patients on 100% FiO2. And how do we measure the adequacy of denitrogenation? This is kind of like a serious nerd out question. I know there are a couple of anesthetists in the room. How do we measure or adequately determine that we are effectively denitrogenating? Academic question, but we can actually, in the lab, measure the fraction of expired oxygen. So of course we know we're giving them 100% oxygen, but we can also measure in the laboratory environment how much oxygen they're exhaling. And the higher the uh, fractional excretion of oxygen, then we know that we have effectively denitrogenated. So there's nitrogen in everyone's lungs. Part of our goals in understanding the physiology behind the RSI process is gotta kick the nitrogen out, gotta flood our patient with oxygen. Now, checklist for RSI. This is something I'm very passionate about, and um, this is a safe space. So I just want to hear how many folks are not yet using uh, checklists? A couple of folks. Now, ready for this, how many folks transport patients to the emergency department and the ED doctor does not use a checklist? Raise your hands up high. Would you get on a plane with a pilot who does not use a checklist? Isn't the emergency doctor supposed to be the authority on rapid sequence intubation? What the heck is wrong in the culture of medicine today that in the pre-hospital sphere, using a checklist is of vital importance. About 85% of providers are already using a checklist, but I transport a critically ill patient to the emergency department and the ED doc is not using a checklist. What's wrong? As I've uh, informed you guys, one of my core missions is eliminating the disparity in patient outcomes, right? We know what the best evidence-based medicine is. Just like in cardiac arrest, we know what high-performance CPR should look like. It doesn't matter which crew is on. It shouldn't matter if it's daytime or nighttime. It shouldn't matter where your emergency doc went to residency or fellowship. Everyone should have the same high-quality evidence-based best practices. For those folks, I want you to talk to your EMS medical directors when you go back and say, hey doc, I love this whole checklist thing, you know, 90% of the room is already doing it, but you need to talk to your colleagues in the ED. We have to make work on making this a standard all across the United States, and you are the right person to help push that envelope, doc. So for those of you guys who are using checklists, I want you to go and have a frank conversation with your medical director and say, hey, the emergency departments themselves could be better. We want you to approach uh, them with some constructive criticism on how exactly to pursue this. What is apneic oxygenation? Let's get the definition out there. Not breathing, right? So this is after paralytic has been administered. What's oxygenation? is oxygenizing and oxygenating, love it. So this occurs with pushing intubation meds and can last anywhere from 45 to 60 seconds while the paralytic is taking effect. And apneic oxygenation is the concept of the passive movement of oxygen to the alveoli without the patient having to breathe on their own or you breathing for them. It's relatively safe and low cost. Since many difficult airways are not able to be identified prospectively, it may be all within our, it may be worthwhile for all of us to practice in our best standards and consider apneic oxygenation in all our patients who require, what's up Martin, uh, an endotracheal tube. 
okay? How many of you guys are familiar with Dave Olvera's concept of the heaven criteria? So I just wanted to introduce Dr. J.C. Pitalode, who's our anesthetist for PHTLS version nine, and we got a hold of this groundbreaking EMS research. Yes, guys, EMS research. This means paramedics who are gathering high quality and robust data and publishing that in peer-reviewed national journals, right? The heaven criteria is part of PHTLS version nine, and you know, you talk about the lemon score, but nobody in reality actually implements lemons. It's kind of useless, and we know that predicting a challenging airway is not effectively done. So definitely encourage you guys to learn more about the heaven criteria. And it's certainly gonna be a part of PHTLS version nine, thanks to Dr. Pilud's uh, leadership. So let's talk about the concept. And just before we get there, I wanna just uh, do the field, uh, ask the question. Sounds like all ALS providers here, most of you are gonna be um, practicing the skill of laryngoscopy. How many of you guys now at a baseline use apneic oxygenation? So half, okay? And for those guys who do use it, what has your experience been, right? And we have to clarify this because it's an extra step. And we know that extra steps can also be challenging. They take time. You might be in a double paramedic crew if you're likely. You might be on a flight crew and have an additional member on board. But a lot of folks are doing this single ALS provider with an EMT, right? So what are your experiences in regards to the implementation of apneic oxygenation within your practice if folks care to share? If a nasal cannula is on the patient, leave it on. Don't take that off because it requires extra stuff to put it back on. The other thing is if you're using side stream caponography, you cannot use that to uh, effectively oxygenate your patient because the prongs are actually sampling, not delivering the oxygen. The oxygen flows through the bar. Are you serious? Yeah, I'm dead serious. You can't oxygenate through end tidal CO2? That's good. my two, two slides from now. But yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So that's a great point. So let's say BLS is first on scene. You get a nasal cannula on, pump it all the way up. And what does all the way up mean? 15 at a minimum. And the concept of this is a deep dive into the literature and academic and evidence base of the idea or the skill of apneic oxygenation. So this was a study done, a randomized trial on subject tolerance and the adverse effects associated with higher versus lower flow oxygen rates. Some people are just afraid to turn it higher than six. They're like, their head's gonna explode. I know it. There's nothing you can tell me that will make me believe that their head will not explode. I know for a fact their head will explode, right? So this study was just a safety study done on healthy volunteers, nasal cannula, turn it up to 15, no adverse outcomes. And what we're actually gonna be advocating for in this talk is nasal cannula via op apneic oxygenation at flush rates. That means like, for example, when you're in the hospital, you're like turning it up as high as it can go. And in some hospitals, that'll be 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 liters per minute of flow rate. Now, let's talk about what's actually going on at the alveoli level. So left is a healthy alveoli, patient is awake, alert, spontaneously breathing, but the right is our concept of apneic oxygenation. And essentially what happens is when you flood the oropharynx with high flow O2, it creates a negative pressure gradient between the upper airway and the lungs by providing a continual supply of oxygen to the upper airway, a reservoir 
of oxygen is maintained, and this oxygen can passively diffuse into the alveoli. And you guys are all incredibly intelligent pre-hospital care providers, so we know that even though there may be some passive absorption of O2, it does not mean that they're being ventilated, and we know that ventilation means what's going on with the CO2. So Dave brought up a very good point, and it's certainly worth bearing because there are always one or two folks who may not have been aware of this, but you cannot pre-oxygenate using your side stream um, end tidal CO2 monitor. And the maximum uh, rate of oxygen you can deliver through this device is? Yeah, five to six liters per minute, right? And so we're talking about minimum 15, and that's a concept we're gonna be exploring. Now we talked at 15 liters per minute, no heads exploded. But now, Doc, you're talking about 50 to 100 liters per minute. They're going to get pneumothorax. Their stomachs are going to explode. I'm going to have like Burger King and Wendy's coming out the wrong way. Things are going to get messy. And the trial that we want to talk about is the Thrive trial. Transnasal humidified rapid insufflation and ventilatory exchange. So 25 patients with difficult airways underwent general anesthesia. The median apnea time was 14 minutes, okay? 14 minutes, zero patients experienced an O2 saturation of less than 90%, okay? And I'll dovetail that comment by saying zero patients, heads exploded, zero patients had spontaneous pneumothoraces, zero patients had spontaneous gastric rupture, okay? You believe me? All right, let's get it on. Now, we're just defining, going through our definition. So we talk about pre-oxygenation, denitrogenation. Just the concept to introduce is re-oxygenation. And I use a cartoon here because hopefully you're never in this situation. You can tell the sphincter tone uh, in these cartoons is very high. And for those of you guys who attended my talk this morning about the limbic system, what we want to do is tone our limbic system so that when shit hits the fan, we can default to our medical decision-making, our high-quality training, and implement interventions that are appropriate, right? So the entire point is never to get into the situation where you need to re-oxygenate your patients. Okay, next evidence-based study. Randomized trial of apneic oxygenation during endotracheal intubation of the critically ill. And sort of the premise for this talk is there was a high-profile um, paper that was published this past year called the ENDAO trial, E-N-D-A-O. And basically what we're looking for is an academic or evidence base to support this practice. We of course know it works, but still, you know, it's nice to have some evidence to say the intervention that takes extra time is actually going to help my patient. So let's set the stage. This is February 2016, the American Journal of Respiratory Critical Care Medicine, and this is known as the FELLOW trial, the facilitating endotracheal intubation by laryngoscopy technique and apneic oxygenation within the ICU. So not in the out-of-hospital sphere, but certainly dealing with a critically ill patient population. So they found that there was no difference in hypoxemia rates between patients that received APOX and those that did not. What the heck? I thought this was supposed to be a talk advocating for apneic oxygenation. And you're telling me, doc, there's no difference? And that's, you know, really, I'm glad for those folks who attended the FOMED. We talk about understanding literature, but also a critical eye for reading that literature, knowing its limitations. What many forgot is in this trial, 
33% or a third of the patients were pre-oxygenated with a BVM. Okay, so you're breathing for them. Another 33% of patients were pre-oxygenated with a BiPAP. They get the paralytic, the BiPAP stays on. They don't really have an apneic time because you're continuing to breathe for them. And two-thirds of the patients were actually not truly apneic during the period induction medications were pushed for laryngoscopy. Now, what's the evidence from the out-of-hospital sphere? I love, um, I love this title. Apneic oxygenation was associated with decreased DSAT rates during RSI, it's my favorite part, by an Australian helicopter emergency medicine service, right? And I love the very subtle uh, approach here because it's kind of like me saying, yes, I did my medical training in Boston, if you know what I mean. Wink, wink, right? So, but of course we're talking about Sydney Hems and they're an excellent group of uh, physicians and paramedics that really, really believe in the highest quality uh, emergency medicine, critical care, and of course resuscitation. This was an observational study, but they found that the prevalence of desaturation during their RSI protocol decreased from 23% of patients were getting, uh, having hypoxic episodes to 17%. So while it was an observational study, they did show a significantly, statistically significant improvement in the desaturation rates for this patient group. Now, this next study is apneic oxygenation reduces the incidence of hypoxemia in the emergency department. And this was a systematic review and meta-analysis. And for those of you guys who are familiar with the foam ed movement, the final author on here is Scott Weingart, who runs the MCRIT blog and podcast. And what they found was eight studies involving 2,000 patients in the ICU and pre-hospital sphere. And they found that apneic oxygenation did reduce the relative risk of hypoxemia by 30% which is great news, but the quality of the studies was low to moderate level of evidence. Uh, the meta-analyses included both flow rates less than 15 and flow rates greater than 50, so a lot of difference in what was being studied. And lastly, adverse events were not reported and the studies were not actually powered adequately to show a difference in patient outcomes. So, you know, we're kind of getting into the weeds of literature review here, but I think it's really important. If we implement a practice in the pre-hospital sphere, it should be effective, especially if it's gonna take more time. So again, the premise of this doc is, come on, show me the evidence. I wanna see the apneic oxygenation is saving lives. And that's our ENDAO trial, E-N-D-A-O, emergency department use of apneic oxygenation versus usual care during RSI. Highly anticipated study from New York City. The nasal cannula uh, was placed at flush rates, so insanely high rates versus usual care, standard care meaning nothing, right? And so that's like when we're initiating the conversation of apneic oxygenation, you can really make a difference if you're trying to educate your BLS providers and colleagues. Like you have a really, really sick patient and you decide that they need a tube and a ventilator. Now you give them some meds, the current standard of care is no additional oxygen is administered, they're not breathing and you know they're critically ill. It kind of on its premise doesn't make sense, right? Which is why we're so inclined to use apneic oxygenation. They had three different strategies for pre-oxygenation. I think it, it's uh, worth bearing out. So either a non-rebreather mask, a BiPAP with a one-way exhalation port, or a BVM connected to flush flow rates with 100% oxygen. 
and their apnea time was a time from the first look, meaning when you insert the laryngoscope blade into the patient's mouth and you confirm your end endotracheal tube via waveform capnography. What they were looking at was, as a primary outcome, the lowest mean oxygen saturation during the apnea period or in the two minutes following intubation. And they also were looking at uh, secondary outcomes, first pass success rates, time to desaturation of SpO2 less than 90 and less than 80, and then overall mortality. So in regards to these curves, uh, the blue is apneic oxygenation and the red is usual care. So what I want you to take away from this slide is um, for the folks that were intubated quickly, the blue and the red line are like very close to one another. There's not much difference. And for those who had a prolonged time for intubation, you can see even the blue and the red, there's not much difference in desaturation rates for this patient population. Come on, man. I thought there was supposed to be a big difference and I could tell everyone on Twitter and I would be so excited. So. Over 70% of the patients were successfully intubated by 60 seconds, and 100% of the patients were intubated essentially within two minutes, okay? So these providers were in, uh, intubating very effectively and very quickly. So the question was, is apneic oxygenation really being tested in this study? And we found that because they were pre-oxygenating and denitrogenating so effectively that they never had an opportunity to desaturate. So what they found was no difference between apneic oxygenation and pre-oxygenation with the provision that the pre-oxygenation and denitrogenation was excellent. In this trial, APOX probably wasn't test tested. First pass success and overall intubation rates were so impressive, patients did not have a chance for their oxygen stores to be depleted. The majority of patients were intubated uh, for a pulmonary cause. And you can just quickly see the you know, column of apneic oxygenation versus usual care. The numbers are all relatively the same. There was no difference in the lowest mean oxygenation saturation between the two groups. All patients were pre-oxygenated for a minimum of three minutes with flush 100% O2. And it's no surprise that there was no difference because everyone was really intubated so quickly. So where do we go from here? Does apneic oxygenation work? That is the freaking point of this conversation. Can we just answer that question already? Oh gosh. We have definite evidence it does work in elective patients in the OR and that it prolongs safe apnea times. But why hasn't it panned out in critically ill populations? Should we be using apneic oxygenation for emergency intubations? And that's where things get interesting. So let's talk about the elephant in the room, physiologic shunt. What does shunt physiology mean? Your alveoli are not being ventilated, okay? So where gas exchange occurs, there's no gas exchange occurring despite their having adequate perfusion. So sometimes we call this a ventilatory perfusion mismatch, but physiologic shunt. When I was a medical student, the uh, ICU attending explained this beautifully, okay? Blood, pus, water, atelectasis. Those are your four main causes of physiologic shunt. Blood, if there's blood in the alveoli, they're not gonna be really good at gas exchange. Pus, if there's a huge honking pneumonia, it's not gonna work like it's supposed to. 
water. If they're in fluid pulmonary edema and CHF, things are not going hunky-dory. And then finally, atelectasis, or the compression or collapse of the alveoli, so it's not effectively expanding and contracting, okay? So I want you guys to remember that. Physiologic shunt, blood, pus, water, atelectasis. Now, we're getting into some real serious science here, but I'm gonna explain the concept of the shunt fraction. And that's the degree of physiologic shunt will be how ineffective the APOTS will be in mitigating desaturation. So in other words, if there is physiologic shunt, apneic oxygenation is going to be in itself insufficient to overcome that alveolar issue. What we're going to need is positive pressure ventilation. Okay, and so we're gonna talk about how apneic oxygenation is the baseline so that you can actually deliver positive pressure ventilation. And we have to remember too, if they're hemodynamically compromised, if they have a low cardiac output, their perfusion may also be down. We talk about, you just gave RSI meds. Uh, for those of you who attended Dr. Jarvis's talk yesterday, right? Avoiding hypotension during RSI. 25% of patients have peri-intubation hypotension. And we need to be incredibly careful about our resuscitation strategies. So all these things come into play. So let's get back to the question, should we be placing the nasal cannula in preparation with uh, RSI at 15 liters or even higher? APOX will probably benefit some patients, those without physiologic uh, shunt or those whom you've already recruited those alveoli, but it also mitigates any BVM leak from having an effect on the delivered FiO2. So if you have an ineffective seal, having the nasal cannula on, BVM on top of that, two separate sources of oxygen, you're actually going to mitigate some of the leak of your high FiO2. And thirdly, and this is really where we get into the interesting stuff, is it allows for the provision of apneic CPAP. Okay, what do I mean by that? So this is a slide actually from Salim. Some of you guys just uh, attended his uh, talk this past hour. Apneic CPAP recruitment. So we said the endout trial was noted to provide excellent pre-oxygenation. If after pre-oxygenation you cannot get your patient's O2 saturation higher than 95%, remember the four, five, six, seven, eight, nine rule, okay? You're pre-oxygenating, you're denitrogenating, you're following your standard care. You cannot get them above 95%, now, all of a sudden, this is a high-risk category, and this is why we come to this conference, because as resuscitationists, we're developing the medical decision-making to say, hey, we can do better in, this sick, in the sickest of the sick patients who require endotracheal intubation, okay? So this is not going to happen that often, but what we're trying to do is give you that armamentarium to say, when this does happen, you know exactly what to do. You have the skills, the technique, so that you can prevent this patient from having a hypoxic episode. And we know a single episode of hypoxia or hypotension during the RSI process significantly increases morbidity and mortality. So we have four different strategies which we can implement, okay? You can use your ventilator with a BVM mask for pre-oxygenation. And I know some of you are like, what do you mean? I haven't intubated them yet. Why would I use my ventilator? So in hospital, it's a little bit easier, but you can actually just throw a BVM mask onto your ventilator and use that for pre-oxygenation. And that is gonna give you some level of PEEP, right? Positive end expiratory pressure, which will help recruit those alveoli and overcome your hypoxemia. We can use something called an oscillator. And 
I didn't know what an oxalator was when I was preparing this talk. It's something that anesthesiologists, uh, anesthesiologists use, so we'll explain that. Uh, you can use a BiPAP machine, also with a BVM mask, similar concept to the ventilator. And then the most common application we can use in EMS is a BVM with a PEEP valve and a pressure gauge monitor. So positive and expiratory pressure valve. So how many guys have PEEP valves on their uh, apparatus? I'm so happy to hear that. For those of you guys who don't, um, talk to somebody who does. Because it's five bucks and it saves lives. So in order for all of these four provisions, we have to first have the nasal cannula on at 15 liters per minute at a minimum for any of these four provisions to work. So that's gonna be my ultimate argument. While the research may not show a clinical difference in the setting of excellent pre-oxygenation denitrination, apneic oxygenation is a must for any patient receiving RSI because if shit hits the fan, it allows you to go to the next level with apneic CPAP recruitment. So let's get into those strategies. So the vent as a BVM, it's a concept piece and you can certainly learn more about this on the MCRIT blog. Not as relevant for the pre-hospital sphere. Um, but ventilator assisted pre-oxygenation. Again, we want a respiratory rate anywhere from six to eight. Um, we set the PEEP valve and we can continue titrating up the positive and expiratory pressure because we know there's only two things which affect our patient's oxygenation and that's going to be the FiO2 as well as the PEEP. The other components of our uh, ventilator settings are primarily going to affect the ventilation or the level of CO2. Obviously FiO2 is going to be set at 100% and we'll set a normal tidal volume for them. Now this is something interesting and I think it's worth talking about is the oxalator. It's a plastic device with a magnetic valve that runs on pressurized wall or tank oxygen. Only two main controls, a pressure setting knob as well as a manual inhalation mode. And it solves the five problems of the BVM. So this is something I talk about is you have a tool in your toolkit, the BVM, it helps you for certain situations, but you always as an informed provider need to know the risks as well as the benefits of that device. So with using a BVM, there are certain risks which I think it's worthwhile talking about. Folks oftentimes give too many breaths, right? We know that this creates terrible physiology for our cardiac arrest patients. Hyperventilation is a big problem in EMS, in the hospital, in the ICU, probably not as much in the OR because our anesthesiologists are so smart, but everyone else under the sun hyperventilates. Those breaths may be at too high a pressure, right? How many folks have pressure gauges on their BVMs? Right? What happens if we're not monitoring pressure? What can happen? Wendy's, Burger King, McDonald's, Kentucky Fried Chicken, in your face, right? Of course, what's that magic number for the lower esophageal sphincter? We, while oxygenating, have to maintain a pressure below. Anybody, Bueller? Less than 20, okay, so good topic, right? So the risk of a BVM. So less than 20 is our ideal goal for pressure while we're ventilating patients. And this again is the concept called the ultimate BVM, how you can create a BVM to optimize your patient and prevent risk and harm to them. The breaths are given too rapidly, so we give too many breaths and we give them too quickly and the overall tidal volume of the breath that's administered is too high. Uh, we get no feedback 
on whether the breath went in or was given against an obstructive airway, right? A BVM or is not really giving you feedback. And in a spontaneously breathing patient, the BVM will give variable FiO2s depending on whether or not you have a one-way exhalation port. We don't want the entrainment of other gases, so it's very important to have a one-way exhalation port. So what can we do in EMS is to construct the ultimate BVM. And number one, you need an expiratory port to allow the entrainment of large amounts of room air during spontaneous ventilation to get out of that circuit. And we want a pressure gauge, a one-way exhalation port, a peep valve, a positive end expiratory pressure, and of course, we need to have anti CO2. And remember, having the nasal cannula on before it hits the fan is of vital importance, right? If you're gonna consider the concept of apneic CPAP, which is really the takeaway message, the nasal cannula needs to be on before you start. Question is, can you use uh, NPAs or bilateral NPAs and stick the oxygen through that? Definitely, by all means. And for a significantly obtunded patient who may have a you know, large neck, et cetera, that would be incredibly helpful. And that gets us to our last point is patient positioning. So let me present the patient for you. It's a, a morbidly obese patient who has presumed septic shock. Pneumonia is likely high on your differential. They're hypoxic. What's your approach for pre-oxygenating this patient? How are you guys gonna go about this? Nasal cannula to start, crank it up. Sniffing position as opposed to the coffin position, right? Dave and I did an intubation like this on somebody, right? This was a 500 pound patient. My sphincter tone was high. And I'm like, all right, what we need to do is do no harm because that is our mission, that is our core belief. And so I'm like, guys, this is how we need to set this patient up. And again, changing culture. Everyone looked at me like I was crazy. I'm like, I'm gonna spend 20 minutes just getting the patient into the optimal position because she's still breathing on her own. And this is what we need to do so we do no harm. As a resuscitationist, you have to be cognizant of your own physiology. I'm like, in order to be the best Dr. Arshad I need to be, I need to use the restroom. I'll be right back. Continue pre-oxygenating. Respiratory therapist was in the room, paramedic in the room, nurses in the room. We're continuing to optimize our patient's hemodynamics and physiology. What about the septic shock? Does that have an effect on my patient's uh, ability to be oxygenated? Yeah, the acidemia is gonna shift our oxygen uh, hemoglobin desaturation curve to the right, which means the hemoglobin molecule is gonna be less sticky for the oxygen, right? So things to remember. Whenever pre-oxygenation is performed, it should be done with patients in the head up position as this increases our functional residual capacity. And thus the volume of oxygen stores can be achieved with better pre-oxygenation. Just a comment here on the hop killer. So acidemia, you know, fever in a patient is going to make the uh, oxygen uh, desaturation curve shift as well. Uh, the hop killers include hypotension, hypoxia, acidemia, or low pH. So we have to be cognizant of our patient's entire clinical picture when we approach uh, our critical procedure. So summary statement, apneic CPAP recruitment. You will not use it that often number one. But number two, if you have a patient that requires endotracheal intubation and you are unable to get their oxygen saturation above 90 to 95, this is when I want you to just have that algorithm in your head, boom, doc taught me about this, this is where my medical decision making is taking to the next level, 
I know how to optimize this patient's physiology, oxygenation status to do no harm. And what I'm going to now implement using the nasal cannula, which I already had on because 90% of the room already practices apneic oxygenation, I now have several interventions which I can do. And those are interventions are gonna help recruit additional al alveoli. Once those additional alveoli are recruited, I can get an O2 set of 100 and I can feel confident that my PO2 is anywhere from 100 to 400. So even for a 400 to 500 pound patient, I can at least give myself a chance to succeed. You know, I give myself a chance to perform laryngoscopy as a skill in a procedure to say, okay, tube has passed through the cords, let's get them onto the ventilator and we will go from there. So I would love to take questions. Thank you so much for your time, guys. My name is Faison Arshad. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at EMS Crit Care. And the blog and the podcast is called EMS Nation. I'd love to take questions and thank you so much for your time. <laughs>